0: Obviously, the most exciting MHU class this semester. Uh, so tonight we're going to be hearing mostly from Austin. Uh, I'm just kind of introducing him, and he's letting me steal two minutes. because. So here's what happened. Last week, if you were here, you might remember we talked a lot about the census in Luke. Um, and uh, I had another thought about it after... The class, like within the next couple of days, that was partly inspired by a question that Austin raised, but it doesn't really directly address it. Um, um, so you might remember, if you were here, we talked about like one of the main problems about the census in Luke was that chronological issue about Corinius. and like it seems like he's talking about um, this census under Corinnaus as if it happened when Jesus was born, when in fact it happened like ten or twelve years later. And I talked about one of the ways to Uh, solve that problem, and um, I argued that it was the best way to solve the problem, was this view that the census was decreed around the time that Jesus was born, but then it didn't actually get carried out until 10 or 12 years later, and I gave this whole story about why that happened. Um, So here's the thought that I had. Uh, When I first introduced that um, solution to the problem, I I began by arguing for an alternative interp- uh, translation of verse 2. And the thought that I had was, um, and that's typically what people who take this line from what I've seen, that's what they do. They argue for this other interpretation or translation of verse 2, that instead of saying this census, they say the census itself. But the thought that I had was, you might not actually need that. It certainly helps. If you're trying to defend the view that the census was decreed at one time and then carried out later. But suppose we just take, like, so one of the translations you'll sometimes see in in English Bibles is um, the census, or this census first occurred when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And I, I think actually that translation fits really nicely with this view for the following reason. In verse one, The first thing Luke says is, in those days, there went out this decree from Caesar Augustus. And that little, in those days, locution, that seems to suggest that, like, he thinks his readers already have an idea of the chronology. Like, he he thinks his readers already have a sense of the time that all these events are taking place, that he's, like, already made that clear. So then why, when he gets to verse 2, does he throw in this parenthetical comment just to tell you about the chronology? Like, oh, yeah, this happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria if he already thinks you know the kind of at least the general time period he's talking about. One way of dealing with that, I mean, one possible answer to that question is just, well, he's trying to be more specific, right? So, yeah, it was in those days, but more specifically, it was when Cornelius was getting, or something like that. But another way of explaining it, and this seems to me like it's certainly a feasible explanation, is the reason he inserts that extra chronological mark is because the census didn't happen at the same time it was decreed. It didn't happen in those days, right? In those days, Caesar decreed this census. But, oh, by the way, the census happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And it seems to me like that's a way that you could read the text without defending, like, a non-standard, I guess, um, translation. So, anyway, um, all that to say that the solution to this problem that i argued was the best solution is even better than i thought it was because it's flexible about how you translate verse 2 okay now uh yeah oh we got a question yeah uh, joanna points out that look if we've got evidence elsewhere that luke is really good at getting his dates and things right then that's that's um a reason to think that when we have a puzzling case like this thing about corinius uh, that we're the ones who are confused and missing something and not Luke. Um, I think that's an excellent point. And that is a point we should keep in mind as we continue to look at the Gospels and to see whether or not they tend to get these things right when we can confirm them.
1: All right. So as you might have noticed, this is our first time working across all four Gospels. So the last couple of weeks, we've just been looking at the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so... First, I want to look at a few concerns that might be brought up by this passage, uh, as well as uh, some possible counter-evidence. So, first, our concerns uh, are obvious ones, and some of these have have been addressed in our uh, presentations here, but I'll bring them up uh, for the sake of those who are listening on the recording. Uh, Questions about who was John the Baptist? (laughs) Did he actually exist? Uh, His... Ministry of baptizing was that uh, something reasonable for him to be doing at the time? Uh, is there evidence that he actually did that? Uh, could we believe that there was a voice from heaven uh, that seems like something miraculous uh, do we need special evidence to believe that that happened um, and then what are some of the differences across the four accounts and are those things that we should be concerned about um, so those are a few few possible concerns that we could we can look at here. Um, so a couple of things against. So uh, I had to actually do quite a bit of searching to even find credible complaints because this section is pretty good as far as the dates and the timing and all of that. It seems to all line up really well. Um, so we'll we'll look at some of those uh, really good evidence for this passage, uh, for these stories, but we'll also look at Uh, I'm just going to find a few things that people have mentioned against it. So this first one, so this is a question about the knowledge of John the Baptist. So we have John the Baptist uh, in John addressing Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Seems like kind of a uh, fitting with the rest of John's high Christology. Like right here, John the Baptist knows that Jesus is some kind of great savior figure. Um as well as calling him the Son of God. Later, though, we see in Luke, so this is in chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 18, that John is sending his disciples to ask, Jesus, are you the Messiah? So here we have two, two different time frames, first John meeting Jesus, and then later on, and at first, John seems very, very confident about who Jesus is. And then later on, he seems to have uh, some doubts that don't perhaps fit uh, with the person, uh, or they don't seem to fit with the level of um, assurance that John seems to have in the first place. Let's call this JBAP's identity crisis. Um, so, what are some possible explanations for this? Um, So what are some of the things that have happened since John the Baptist has first met Jesus? Okay, so John the Baptist is now thrown in jail. Um, Why might that give him some doubts as far as the identity of Jesus? Okay, so he's not able to watch Jesus' ministry. He can't see what's going on. Um, But it sounds like his disciples are kind of relaying some messages. So he has some idea Jesus is still out there doing things, but... He's in prison, possibly fearing for his life. Um, any other suggestions? What, maybe, what, what were some of his possible expectations of who Jesus would have been as a Messiah? Yeah, so John clearly has a privileged position in relation to Jesus, uh, as, as the Messiah. We've got prophetic, pro- we've got these prophecies about John that are being ascribed to him and his ministry. And here the Messiah has finally arrived. And he's he's baptized him, the ministry is, is on its way, but now John's in prison. And nothing really seems to have changed in Judea. The political situation is the same, Herod is still ruling and not the greatest guy around. Uh, the Romans are still in charge. Yeah, so John's parents uh, would have been, or his father was, was a priest, right, so... Um, so, yeah, John would have grown up knowing all of his Old Testament. He would have known the prophecies. He would have had the same, probably the same expectations that the rest of the disciples had. Um, and we know from some of the later accounts, when the disciples asked Jesus things like, hey, so when's the kingdom going to happen, right? Like, we're, we're waiting for you to overthrow Rome. What, what are we waiting for? Um, he probably had somewhat similar political expectations. And here he is sitting in jail... And Jesus isn't doing anything about it. So I I think we can understand why John might be starting to question who he thought Jesus was and who the Messiah was supposed to be. um, Because he was probably expecting a political leader just as as many of the other Jews were. Yeah, so this would have been one of Herod's children. This is Herod Antipas. Yeah, so so Herod's name would have been passed on to his children as a way of probably celebrating himself. Uh and them identifying with his his power and authority. Um so yeah, so this Herod would have been one of his children or um, yeah, just like George Foreman. Okay. Uh another against here is this uh I believe, falls into the category of being a uh, lack of coherency. And this is the fact that Jesus was baptized at all. So, John, as we know, is baptizing a baptism of repentance. Well, why do we repent for things? We repent for things we've done wrong. So, if Jesus is receiving this baptism, doesn't that seem to imply uh, some unsavory things about the character of Jesus. On one hand, the Gospels are painting a picture of Jesus as without sin. Uh, But if Jesus is receiving the baptism of repentance, that seems to contradict that. The funny thing is the person who brought this up says, the fact that he was baptized by John has always been an embarrassment to the church. So what are some other positive evidence categories that might respond to this uh this claim as a refutation that might actually put in the put this in the favor of the historicity of the gospels yeah so john john doesn't want to baptize jesus because that seems to be saying i have more authority over you or i have more power over you yeah so if he can't even untie his sandals why should he be baptizing him so it is an embarrassment um, which is why it would fall into our evidence for the historicity as as uh, a piece of embarrassing evidence. Um, I thought it was helpful the way that Keener puts it. He says it is virtually inconceivable that early Christians made up the story of John baptizing Jesus. It was established it was established rhetorical practice to hurry most quickly over points that might disturb the audience. Matthew appropriately hastens over the baptism itself in a participle. The fourth gospel omits it altogether. Following their, their sources, however, the synoptics retain this information, albeit in the barest form. So he's saying, in a sense, they do kind of, like, skip over it a little bit. They're like, oh, and John baptized Jesus. Move along. Because it was, it was embarrassing. Um, yeah, they're really short snippets. And in many ways, it makes Jesus look—if John is supposed to be the forerunner to Jesus— this account seems to, to press back in the face of that, and so, or seems to contradict that claim. So the fact that they include it at all seems to be evidence for the, for the fact that it did actually happen. Because um, even John himself is like, I don't want to baptize you, that's not my role, that's uh, not fitting for me to do that. So the fact that they include that this actually happened, uh, even though it shows that it's unfitting, seems to suggest that it did actually happen. All right, one more piece of, we'll have, of evidence against, or I've got, I've got two more little ones here. Um, this other one is uh, could be both a discrepancy or about coherency, um, mostly because uh, part of the discrepancy just takes place in Luke. Um, so basically, Luke claims, he claims to be the most chron- chronological of the authors, uh, he tries to give an impression that Jesus did not, that John did not baptize Jesus, because he mentions Jesus' baptism after his account of John being in prison. So this is in Luke three twenty. I think this one is fairly self-explanatory if you uh, just read the text. It seems to be fairly straightforward that this is not problematic. Uh, but I'll just read that real quickly. Uh, so John gives his speech, and then, or he. So about baptism. And then it says in verse 20, or sorry, let's start with verse 18. So many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So... Luke talks about John being in prison, and then he talks about the baptism, which seems to suggest that John isn't the one baptizing Jesus. How could he do that? He's in prison. Any suggestions why, just just from the text, why that might be a wrong reading of this passage? Yeah. So the yeah beginning of twenty one. So now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also been baptized. So it's it's very much yeah, he seems to be jumping back to another point and it seems, yeah, I mean, I potentially his disciples might be baptizing if John was in jail. So I I don't, and Jesus has his disciples baptized. So I think it's, it's possible someone else could be doing the baptizing. Um, but I think the, the fact about Herod seems like a little parenthetical aside, right? He's saying Herod, uh, Herod, who had been reproved by him, right? So he's sort of adding in this little aside. And in addition to all these things, he also threw John in in jail. So he's telling us a little bit about about Herod on the side of his bigger story about the baptism. Okay, yeah, so in in 6.16, yeah, so when he's talking about the, the 12 apostles, he mentions Judas as a traitor. So you're saying Luke has a tendency to add in a little bit of commentary to help his readers understand who the people are and what's going on in the story, right? So if he wants to paint a picture of Herod, who he's describing in that moment, he's throwing in a little bit of extra details about who Herod is. And this happens to be one of those details, just like he throws in some details about Judas later, describing the the apostles. Great. All right. Any other thoughts on that? Got one, one more little uh, counter evidence here. Uh, this was just a really, really small one, but I thought it was one of those things that ultimately that kind of adds to our evidence so this is um so in the voice coming from the sky uh, in the baptism in one of the passages which i haven't distinguished here but i i think this is the difference between matthew and luke uh one of them says you are my son and the other one says this is my son so which one did the voice say did it say, you are my son, or did it say, this is my son? And does it matter, or should we be concerned about this? It does very explicitly, at least I didn't look at the one that says this, but the you literally says, you are my son, um, with a second person to be verb. I, I want to say the difference is Matthew and Luke. Luke says you, and Matthew says this. Yeah, this, the uh Matthew 3.17, very... It says, Hutas Estin, this is, is my son. There are some other versions, and I don't know if this could be a correction, but the text critical notes do suggest that other versions have you are. So I don't know if that's most likely somebody's later attempt to harmonize the two, the two gospels. Why does it matter? Uh, well, I think some people think, well, if they got anything wrong, they got all of it wrong. But, as we pointed out in previous classes it 's silly because <laughs> uh, it 's not the way we should think about historical events or really any news reporting events, right, even if you were today to turn on and watch several different news sources and watch the same exact account or watch an account of the same exact event you 're going to get different angles you 're going to get different sides of that event you 're going to get slightly different descriptions and if anything, all of those different details, and as we talked about, those little minor variations actually suggest, uh, and this is where we get our multiple attestations idea, is they suggest that those are different accounts of the same event, uh, as opposed to someone just copying someone else's account, right? So if you flipped onto a different news source, and you heard somebody verbatim give you the exact same story, you'd know they had clearly gotten it from the first, from the other source, or somebody had copied somebody, right? But if you flip from Fox to CNN and you get the exact same event and you get pretty much all the same details, but from a very different perspective or very, you know, different wording, it, it's good suggestion that the event actually did occur. Um, though maybe the detail, there's, there are small details that we're not totally sure about. Yeah, that's a great point. So yeah, so if we were in a courtroom today and we had a bunch of witnesses called up and they all used the exact same phrasing to talk about, the color of the room, you know, like you'd start to, oh, that sounds really similar. That's the exact same wording that other person used. That can't be a coincidence. They must have rehearsed this or planned it or or something like that. And then you start to doubt, you know, wh- who whose story really is it? And did they come up with it together? So if we got Matthew and Luke talking about the same event and we've got maybe people remembering it slightly differently, uh, but telling us basically the same thing, that seems to suggest that people actually remembered this event happening, and different people remembered that this event happening, which gives more credibility to the fact that it did happen, e- even if we're not. Yeah, so that's a good point. Both Matthew and Luke aren't actually eyewitnesses, and they're getting the story from different people who were eyewitnesses, and they're both getting very similar details. Uh, that's also really good evidence that, that those details remained the same. Uh, at least in most part, passed down to Matthew and Luke. Yeah. So the question was: Did, did Matthew and Luke know each other? Could they be corroborate or collaborating? Um, and what what we do know is, or or what we think to know, uh, what scholars claim is that we they both drew from Mark because they pretty much have everything from Mark in them, uh, and pretty much keeping a lot of the wording from Mark. So. Uh, so I think we talked about this the first or second week maybe, but Mark, so Mark is thought to be the oldest gospel. It's also the shortest. It's kind of just the quick, you know, point by point, here's what happened. There's not a lot of analysis or, or explanation. It's just, here's what Jesus did. Um, so that was probably the first thing written down that was circulating at the time. It's very likely there were lots of other things circulating that maybe his disciples, Jesus' disciples took notes of his teaching, things like that. Um, so there are other suggested sources. There's a source people suggest called Q, because there are other things that Matthew and Luke both use that aren't in Mark. So there, so there, are, there are things that Matthew and Luke both have in their gospel that are not from Mark, so they're independent from Mark, but they both seem to have together. So the suggestion for that is that there's an additional source, other than Mark, that was floating around, people were using, maybe it was a collection of Jesus' sayings, uh, something like that, and they both took from that. Um, it's the, it just comes from the German word, source. But if we compare Matthew and Luke, there are still things that are quite different between them, right? So it's not like they sat down in a room together and were like, "Ooh, I'm going to take this piece and, hey, do you want this one? Right, like they're, they're clearly writing. So they might have bumped into each other every now and then. You know, the early church was a relatively small place um, or small community, but they they clearly didn't write them together. There, there are enough differences that they clearly wrote separate accounts. But we do know they drew on some of the same sources, um, which is why earlier when we talked about we talked about when we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accounting the same story depending on that story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke might not actually be independent sources from each other. Because if we find the story in Mark, and it's very similarly written in Matthew and Luke, it's a good chance that Matthew and Luke both got it from Mark. But John, we don't think John drew on any, necessarily any of the same sources that they did. I mean, again, there may be some similar things floating around, but it's not clear that he drew on, there's no, there's no identical material, let's say that. I, I think I'm right in saying that. So um, so so, even so in that case, we might say, well, really Matthew, Mark, and Luke are one source because Mark is the source. But John is drawing from something totally different, totally different witnesses, totally, like something different because he has the same event, but clearly not coming from the same person. That makes sense. Okay, let's get to some evidence for... Uh, So we had some excellent presentations that covered a lot of these details already. Uh, Stealing some of my thunder. So uh, a couple of them that I'll just quickly mention uh, for the sake of those listening in. Uh, So this question of who is John the Baptist? Did he actually exist? Um, So we heard that there is some great independent evidence uh, from Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, confirming that John the Baptist did in fact exist, uh, and fitting some of the character that we know of John the Baptist. Uh, So I'll read that for you real quick. It says, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God. And so to come to baptism... Uh, Herod feared lest the great influence John had come over had over the people might put in, put it into him power and inclination to raise a rebellion. So we get slightly different reasons for why Herod executed John uh, compared to what uh, the Gospels tell us. Um, but we get a similar portrait of John. He's commending people to righteousness. Um, he. Was a good man. Clearly, he had some influence, right? He was a, he was a teacher, which seems to fit the gospel's picture of having loads of people coming to John. I think it literally says something about like all of Israel or all of Judea. There's, there's some kind of superlative phrase that suggests everybody was coming to John. So, so we have this suggestion that there were crowds of people coming. Uh, so if Herod was afraid of John's influence, that also seems to really fit what the gospels tell us about what's going on here. Um, all right, uh, we heard a couple things about how the river uh, was the only, it was in, both in a place where uh, it would have been slightly inconspicuous, um, so the authorities would have been less likely to be upset about what was going on because of where it was. Uh, it was the largest b- body of running water that could support thousands of people showing up to be baptized, um, and so a lot of those things fit the geography um, of what we would expect. Josephus was a Jewish historian from the late first century so Josephus he so he was Jewish uh, but he worked for the Romans and he was putting together a, a history um, and so in his history he included this as one of the political events that happened in uh, in Judea at the time well this was about John this is about John being put to death so he so he's he's both uh, affirming John as a, as a historical figure uh, and affirming uh, Herod putting him to death. All right, so here's a fun one or interesting one that uh, Joanna brought up, and I think it uh, just brings up some good conversation about the Gospels and some things we talked about last week uh, that Elena and I were talking about afterwards about the original languages of the Gospels. Uh, so this is from Matthew three, nine, and Luke three, eight. And so it's suggested here that there is this, this play on words that's happening that is, is just an odd expression. Um, basically it says that, uh, that God could raise up children from these stones, children of Abraham. Uh, it's just, it's just an odd expression. And in Greek, it doesn't seem to mean anything, you know, it's not anything saying anything that particular that jumps out at us but if you look back and, and people sort of translate back into aramaic uh, and you can do this as well with hebrew because the words are basically the same i don't know any aramaic so i'm gonna do some hebrew um but you get kind of this cool play on words so i thought it'd be it's kind of a fun thing to look at so this says uh from and this is the word here uh stones so evanim so from the, this is the, so you'll get that. Actually, that's a verb, so don't get that there. I'm assuming that's Allah and the uh, Hifil. No, the, the, sorry. I think this is a Hifil form of Allah. I don't know. I'm assuming you know more Hebrew than I do. Okay, anyway. Uh, so from the stones, uh, we'll raise up. And this is sons, so Banim. So you can see, these are the same vowels here. B, na, m. So banim, and this would be vanim. Uh, so you have m, ha, vanim, ha, la, banim. So you get this really cool like alliteration that happens um, that perhaps explains the expression, or at least makes more sense than what it would make sense for English or Greek. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an idiom, and and I think we do this too, right? Or at least I've done this. If you ever learned another language, and you're trying to use that language, you start taking expressions that you know and putting them in that language, even though that language would never say it that way. So, for example, <laughs> uh, in Spanish, you might say something like "quiero," I, I want, uh, I want something. Right? In English, we say "I want." This thing, right? There's just the verb. But in Spanish, they would say quiero que and then use some kind of subjunctive or something like that. Um, And I had a professor tell me a funny story once when he was living in Portugal. He was asking these women, uh, do you want me to do such and such? Right? But he didn't use the subjunctive. He didn't say, do you want that I go do this? He just said, do you want me? Which to them meant was basically an innuendo uh and they laughed at him and he didn't understand why because the expression doesn't translate right the portuguese or or spanish they don't use those the the verbs and the objects in the same way and but but in english that's how we say it and so you could just transfer it over so many ways it's a very odd expression in greek like children stones what is he talking about but if you go back to aramaic or or in the hebrew it makes sense as as an idiomatic expression. So it's a suggestion that this uh, this phrase was originally perhaps said in Aramaic, um, which would again would make it very old, right? So if if the gospels being written somewhere else in the Roman Empire Empire, hundred years later, they're not going to know any Aramaic, right? Like people who didn't live in this area in Palestine were not going to speak a Semitic language. It would not have been useful to them they're not going to know semitic languages so expressions that come from them uh, are very likely from someone who was there on the ground at the time this saying the actual phrase uh it would be i didn't put any foul diacritics because that would have taken a while and i don't know what they are um okay but i thought this brought up a a good sec- side point that I wanted to address because of a previous conversation about what languages the old, the New Testament would have originally been in, and some questions around was it aramaic was it in Greek um, so I did a little a little searching around and there 's actually a lot of there 's a, a really good evidence that everyone would have had some Greek right May, maybe if you' a small backwater village somewhere you might not, but for the most part, most people would have spoken at least greek as a as a second language, um, so uh, this one guy, Stanley Porter, he says that sixty eight percent of all the ancient Jewish inscriptions from the Mediterranean world are in Greek um, and he 's talking about sorry, this is in reference to uh, like sarcophagi and other burial things, which is a good way to know like what the common people did right we look at burial sites so so most of them, he says 70%, uh, if you count Greek bilingual inscriptions, if Greek is just one of the languages. So he's saying a good, a good percentage, two thirds, more than two thirds of the people, we think, uh, would have at least spoken some Greek, uh, if not maybe even primarily Greek. So he, he sums it up as this. He says, the evidence regarding what is known about the use of Greek in ancient Palestine, including the cosmopolitan Hellenistic character of Lower Galilee, uh, the, the epigraphic and literary evidence, including coins, papyri, literary writers, inscriptions, and funeral texts, but most of all, several significant contexts in the Gospels, all points in one direction. Whereas it is not always known how much or and on which occasions Jesus spoke Greek, it is virtually certain that he used Greek at various times in his itinerant ministry. So he points to a number of cases where Jesus is talking to people who the Gospel writers tell us was a gentile um and this person points out that it's very unlikely the gentiles would have spoken aramaic it wouldn't have been that useful to them the the public language would have been greek why would you learn this kind of small town semitic language um, but jesus just walks up and starts talking to these people or they walk up and start talking to him uh, and there's never a mention of a translator now it's possible that it, it just happens to never be mentioned Uh, but it's also very possible that Jesus just happened to speak Greek because most people spoke Greek. Um, as well as one of the other cases when Jesus goes into, uh, is on trial before Herod, right? Um, Herod wasn't necessarily from the area so much. Maybe he didn't even speak Aramaic. Sorry, Pilate. That's what I meant. Not Herod. Herod would have spoken Aramaic. Uh, most likely Pilate, right? He's sent from Rome. He's not didn't grow up there so you might know a little bit because he's been there for a while but there's a good chance that jesus was speaking to him in greek so any questions about language in gospels any of that it was kind of a side note but i thought it was a helpful helpful thing to think about that's true yeah yeah so so jesus uh yeah if jesus was on the carpenter he'd be going to the marketplace or going to other marketplaces and traveling around. Uh, and the language of, of trade would have been Greek because um, it would have been the most common common language. So he would have probably needed to know some Greek for that. Uh, and then also the point about his conversation with Nicodemus. Um, so there's a, there's a line where he talks about uh, being born from above. And usually the English, will, it'll, it's often translated born again. It's how we we translate it, um but the phrasing is oh, is it it's because he says, because the word for for above can also mean again, I think is the confusion because he yeah part of part of what catches Nicodemus up is he's talking about being born again, yeah i think I think that's the distinction between above and again, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, Bart Ehrman suggests that we should basically get rid that any any passages where Jesus seems to be speaking Greek uh, are probably later adaptations. Okay, at least with the case of Nicodemus, that was added later. Uh, but you have to start with the assumption that Jesus couldn't have spoken Greek, which the rest for evidence seems to suggest that he most likely did. All right, I think we have time for one or two more of these. Okay, this is an undesigned coincidence between Matthew 14 and Luke. So, uh, if you open up Matthew 14, this is is odd for us to have this in the Gospels. um, If you think about the fact that we're getting this from somebody's perspective, probably not the perspective of somebody who's hanging out with Herod. Right like these are the kind of details you expect in a novel where the narrator the the writer has the sort of god's eye perspective they've got the omniscience they know so and so is thinking this or so and so is having this conversation in this back room and they're whispering right? we have those kind of details, but how would, do we have this kind of detail in the gospels right like how did Matthew's source know that Herod said this well in luke uh eight three we have a little side note um, that says, so we're talking about Mary Magdalene, and it says, uh, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So one of the women following Jesus around was the wife of Herod's household manager, which, most likely would have been one of the servants mentioned in Matthew chapter 14. So, uh, clearly this is an undesigned coincidence, right? This is just a passing comment that Luke makes, like, oh yeah, there happened to be this woman, and oh yeah, she happened to be the wife of the head of Harold's household. Oh, great. Um, but that explains how we have this kind of backroom conversation that happened in Matthew, that Matthew records for us. Um, which also, because it's not, those, those two different details aren't recorded in both Gospels, right? Like Luke records this one detail that she's there, and Matthew records this other detail that this conversation happened, meaning that most likely they're getting those from two different sources, right? Um, so it's possible they're getting it from the same source, and they're picking out what one of them thought it was important, and the other one didn't, which either way says they probably weren't collaborating, um, but it's also very Possible that it suggests that they had different sources for that same information. Uh, sorry, eight uh, chapter eight verse three. I thought that one was pretty cool. One of those little little tiny details. Um, a couple other quick ones. So we've got uh, another uh, some embarrassing ones. So some mentioning that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, uh, and he's even accused of being a, a drunkard and a glutton you know, if you're writing this story about this guy that's supposed to be this great hero, it's not the most flattering impression of him, right? Like, people thought he was just a drunkard and a glutton, like, hanging out with all the lives, right? Not really the picture you want to paint of your ideal savior. Um, so, another one of those details that is an odd thing to mention, if Jesus wasn't actually doing that, why would you paint him this picture of being this unsavory character, which also fits a little bit of our indirect evidence that We know that at the time, tax collectors were not people that that people liked. (laughs) They were basically being employed by Rome to extort their fellow citizens uh, and their family members, so people did not like them very much. Um, So it it sort of fits the the vitriol we hear here about Jesus hanging out with tax collectors um, fits what we know of the context. Well, Jesus was going and having dinner with them, so there's a few, so the story of Zacchaeus and a few different people that, that we hear Jesus goes and has dinner with them in their house. Sure. Why not? Well, Jesus sort of invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. (laughs) He's like, I'm having dinner at your house. And Zacchaeus is like, okay, I guess. Yeah. And I think the fact that as a religious leader that he didn't turn his nose up at them would have been pretty significant uh, because they would have been considered more or less unclean or at least social social outcasts. So the fact that he did go spend time with them uh, shows a lot about his compassion and his character, um, about who Jesus is and what He came to do. Yeah, yeah, it just affirms Jesus' claim that He came to seek and save the lost. Right? He He goes to the sick because uh, they're the ones who need a doctor. He doesn't come for the for the healthy. We've got our medical professional asking about about John's uh, odd dietary habits. Uh, so I think that we think John was probably a Nazarite maybe well okay that's fair actually um that's actually in one of my other notes here so some of the evidence for john the baptist and his ministry comes from the dead sea scrolls uh which i think i only have one reference from but um so there's some suggestion that things he was saying or doing at the time maybe didn't fit what people thought was happening at the time, so the suggestions that things from John the Baptist ministry are from our later adaptions or later things that have been interpreted theologically. Uh, but we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that there was this people group, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, called the Essenes, and they lived uh, over by the Dead Sea, which is why we called them the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they lived in some caves out there, and they had... A, basically, like a commune community, right? They they wanted to live the way that God had called the people of Israel to live. They felt like everybody else had, you know, become too Hellenistic or Roman or whatever, and they wanted to go back to pure living. So they were off in the desert, living together, trying to live out the law the best that they could. Um, and what we get from a lot of their writings, we get very similar types of messianic prophecies. Um, a lot of things we see in John the Baptist ministry. A very uh, it's very eschatological, so very much expecting that the end times are coming that God is going to show up and and do this this thing and so part of that part of them being out in the desert is them being out there to clean themselves up we're We're waiting for the messiah we're waiting for God to do this thing that's going to change everything, and we're we're going to prepare ourselves for that so there's some there's a lot of suggestions that John the Baptist. Uh, was potentially part of that community. So, him being out in the desert, um, they, they probably, uh, and I, th- I think, um, had a more of an ascetic lifestyle. So, they would have practiced a lot of fasting or, or eating really minimal things. So, may, yeah, possibly the locust wild well honey were particularly tied to that community, which is something we can look up. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's very much, he's very much presented as like, a total weirdo, right? I mean, it's like he wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt, you know. It's, yeah. He, he Right, yeah, yeah. If you're like, oh, yeah, this is just, just it's what everybody does, right? We all wear camel hair outfits. I don't think camel hair is very comfortable. That's just my guess. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, and I think we actually see this when we look at the Desert Fathers, which is a group of people in the early church, so... Uh, yeah, so the Sufis, the desert mystics in Islamic tradition, part of the ascetic lifestyle is wearing uncomfortable clothing, right? Because it's part of the, the sanctifying experience of being uncomfortable and needing to rely on God in that lack of comfort. Um, and you, see, you do see this in a lot of later Christian monasticism as well, people wearing sackcloth or wearing really uncomfortable garments for that exact purpose. Um, so that would also makes, fit the ascetic lifestyle. Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe John's expectation of Jesus would have been something similar, right? So if he's, if, if, especially with the Essene community, they see themselves as being kind of the the people who have purified themselves, right? So you've got, you've got the kind of political zealots as one of the factions uh, in, in Israel at the time. And they're the ones who want to overthrow the Romans uh, actually, you know, with, with military violence. You have people like the Essenes who are, they, they're the recluse. Like we're going to go out in the desert and we're just going to live this pure holy lifestyle. Um, and Jesus doesn't fit into either of those categories. right? So it's very confusing because he's supposed to be the Messiah. And the Messiah is either going to overthrow Rome or he's going to bring in this kind of eschatological spiritual age thing where we're all going to be super holy. But he's hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. So he's not being ascetic and he's not fasting and wearing uncomfortable clothing or things like that. So, yeah, that's a good... I think we might explain also some of that, those expectations. Um, okay, just because tying in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, <clears throat> so this is some uh, indirect external evidence. Um, and again, there's there's some views that anything really in the Gospels that seems to legendarize Jesus beyond just being a... Wondering teacher or wise person or, you know, religious leader that gives him these kind of messianic categories or, or, um, this kind of language, uh, is, is a later, is something that's added later, right? The people sort of, Jesus dies and, and so they kind of legendarize him later. Um, and some of that is, is from arguing that the Jews of the time didn't actually have the expectations that we see. Being ascribed to him as a Messiah. So what the Pharisees are talking about and the Sadducees are talking about, they don't seem to fit the the messianic expectations that Jesus is being said to fulfill. Um, However, we do have in some of the Qumran, the the Dead Sea fragments, we actually get very similar messianic understandings. So I'm just going to read this little passage. It says, for the heavens and the earth will listen to his anointed one, and all that is in them will not turn away from the precepts of the holy ones strengthen yourselves you who are seeking the lord in his service will you not in this encounter will you not in this encounter the lord all those who hope in their hearts for the lord will consider the pious and call the righteous by name and his spirit will hover upon the poor and he will renew the faithful with his strength for he will honor the pious above the throne of an eternal kingdom freeing prisoners giving sight to the blind straightening out the twisted and forever shall I cling to those who hope and in his mercy. And the fruit um, there's a lot of bits in this because the scrolls are in fragments. Uh, not be delayed, the Lord will perform marvelous acts such as have not existed. Just as he said, for he will heal the badly wounded and will make the dead alive. He will proclaim good news to the poor and he will lead uh dot, dot, dot and enrich the hungry and so on. So We we have there some of the prophecies from Isaiah, right? Some of the other prophecies that are attributed to Jesus. We actually have the Essenes at the time reading those same prophecies in that way, right? So so they are interpreting Isaiah and interpreting other passages, uh, those prophecies to be about the Messiah, right? So so some people might say, well, you know, that's not what they ever thought those passages meant, and that was a later adaptation to say, well, look how Jesus fits this thing. But actually, even already at that time, people were waiting for a Messiah who would fulfill some of those expectations. Um, so even though he didn't, Jesus certainly didn't meet a lot of people's expectations, um, some of these prophecies were already apply, being applied to the Messiah uh, at that time or, or even previously. So these, were, these would have been in the book of Isaiah uh, and some of the other Old Testament books, the Psalms. So, okay, so, so these, they had, they were Jews, and they had the same Old Testament scriptures that the rest of the Jewish people had. They were, they were just like a sect of, of Judaism, if that makes sense. Yep. They lived by the Dead Sea, uh, and we found all of these writings in some caves uh, by the Dead Sea. Some guys were out uh, wandering around and throwing rocks into holes in the wall, Uh, into a rock wall and then all of a sudden they heard some shattering pottery and thought oh that's weird and all of a sudden they found (laughs) lots of pottery full of scrolls so good good fun happenstance i think we found them in the 60s but they, they were written around this time and earlier yeah okay awesome